The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gaed, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. I am not a journalist, not an anchor, somebody who's sitting in the game trying to figure it out like everybody else with the unknowable future always ever present. So uh, hopefully those uh, those that are here are able to get out of their echo chambers and at least think differently about uh, tomorrow. Joining us for the hour here, Peter Zion, who's got quite a following on YouTube. It's, it's actually funny, Peter, on uh, on YouTube, as far as most search terms in the investment world, your name shows up many times over. So hopefully that'll help with uh, a little SEO also for my YouTube channel, since I'll have this as a edited video here. But before we get too deep into your worldview, Peter, just introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? How'd you get involved in thinking about some of these big picture uh, dynamics on the geopolitical front? And what are you doing now? Uh, let's give you the short version. Uh, at my old company, I was the only generalist that they had. And when you are speaking to analysts, they try to make everything about their region. They pride themselves on knowing everything. And they will try to make any topic about what they know about. And <laughs> they really find clients aggravating, especially if the client knows something. So I was a generalist. I took it as an opportunity to learn different things from different points of view. And over my time at the old job, I did time in all the regions and all the topical areas. And when I left, I guess it's been 10 years ago now, I've just been working with clients to help prepare them for the future. My, my job is to break out the crystal ball and look at geography and demography and help people figure out what they're going to be struggling with and what they're going to be taking advantage of six months, six years down the line. Okay, so let, let's focus on the term generalist for a second because I think a lot of people on Twitter would <laughs> like to think that they're generalists. But if you're a generalist, you still have to focus most of your time on some broad topics. So you mentioned geography and demographics. I want you to hit on the demographic aspect of where we're headed, because everyone knows about baby boomers retiring at an unbelievable pace. But how does that actually filter through into not just uh, political tensions, but also maybe uh, investing dynamics? Well, there's two big angles from that point of view. The first of all is when you retire, you change your portfolio. You, you move away from stocks and bonds. You move to T-bills and cash. You become a lot less adventurous because if there is a currency crash, if there is a market crash, you're you're done. There's no chance to recoup your your earnings. There, there's no more income coming in. And so things pretty much get locked up in a glacier when you turn 65, and then you just whittle away at that glacier until you die. Now, in the United States, our boomers did one thing different from everybody else's boomers. They had kids. 
So we have an investment bomb that's going off right now, and it will get progressively worse over the next decade until those kids, the millennials, start becoming old enough to be the drivers of investment in American society. We will get there in the 2040s. Or excuse me, we will get there in the, the mid to late 2030s. So we have a 10 to 15 year gap where we know capital costs are going to be higher, where anything speculative is going to have difficulty attracting money. And it's just going to be rough. There's no way around it. We've known that this was coming uh, since the 60s, and it's finally here. And then the second big piece is everywhere else. Everyone else didn't have a millennial generation. So Gen X is smaller than the boomers. The millennials are smaller than Gen X, and the Zoomers are smaller than then I'm sorry, the millennials are smaller than the Xers. And so for everyone else, this isn't just a period where capital costs go up. This is the cheapest it will ever be for them. And they will never come back uh, to where they have been in the last 60 years, certainly not in our lifetimes. And this is now locked in. This has been locked in for decades. The demographic patterns we're on were established at the end of World War II when the Americans created globalization as a means to fight the Cold War. And everyone moved off the farms into the cities. And on the farms, kids are free labor, so you have a bunch. And in the cities, kids are expenses, so you have fewer of them because adults can do math. 70 years on, it's a very different picture. It's not that we're running out of kids. It's that most of the advanced world ran out of kids 50 years ago. We're now running out of 50-somethings. And there is not an economic model out there to describe or cope with what we're about to experience. So we know that the old models of investment, we know that the old models of economic growth just no longer apply in most of the world. But because of the millennials, we have the most time here. We are aging the most slowly. And we are one of only a very few short list of countries uh, that has the capacity to go back to the old normal if the millennials have enough kids. Verdict is out on that. And these, these broad secular demographic trends are notoriously difficult to reverse, right? You can't necessarily point to some kind of catalyst where suddenly, unless it's like another world war and you get another baby boom type of situation where suddenly these dynamics would uh, would change. Well, the reason the baby boomer existed was not because of the war per se, but because of the post-war globalized system being formed. We provided everybody with the opportunity to move into, in the United States' case, the suburbs uh, and have kids, things like the GI Bill and the Interstate Act allowed people to move from where they had lived to places where the cost of living would be low and incomes could be high. And that is the baby boomer story of the last 70 years. That is why the United States is what it is. Most of the rest of the world, they did the urbanization thing, but they don't have suburbs. And so everyone moved directly into condos. There was never that quarter acre lot and that yard that allowed you to have lower cost of living and more room for the kids. We can't do that a second time. It's already been done once. Now we still have the suburbs. So we do know that the rate of birth rate decline in the US is among the lowest in the world. And this is good, but it's still declining. And there's no way around that. Uh, other countries have tried various things to try to get the birth rates up. Uh, the Swedes and the French particularly have a, a cradle to job support system for young parents who are raising kids. It does help. But you're talking about an expense on the scale of what we do for our defense department. Uh, that is not small. You don't turn that on in a year. That is a cultural thing. And even with that, even with Sweden and France having the best demographies in Europe, it's still significantly worse than us. It's not enough as we've learned. 
And as I was reviewing some of your prior media appearances, it sounds to me like China's the uh is the biggest problem child for for the oh, yeah. the children dynamics. So to talk about that a little bit because a lot of people hear about these these policies that are meant to restrict the number of kids that are born, but you can argue that even if those policies didn't exist, probably have still the same outcome. Absolutely. Well, well, maybe not the same, and not quite as bad, probably. But who? Yeah. So urbanization is the is the is what gives you the the strong economic growth, the manufacturing jobs, the services jobs, the value added, the higher education. These are all good things. We all agree that these are good things. But it also means you move into a smaller space, and so you have fewer children. Now, in the United States, that process didn't start in 1950. It started in 1800 with the first wave of industrialization. We modernized and industrialized and urbanized over seven generations. China did it in one. So seven years of economic transformation and industrial build-out done in 40 years. So, of course, their economic growth has been spectacular. But it also means they went off of the rice paddies and into condos and urban zones all at once. And the birth rate dropped by... I keep revising the number, but I think we're now up to 85% in 40 years. And Shanghai and Beijing now have the lowest birth rates of any city in any era in any country ever. One child's on top of that. Now, with the, the most recent data that's leaking out of Beijing, it looks like they realize now that during one child, a lot of people lied about the data. Not necessarily on birth certificates, but most census is collected in places where the children arrive in groups. So primary schools. And your budget was based on how many kids you had. So the local governments just have been lying pathologically about it for 40 years, reporting more kids than they actually have. And it looks like that overcount is in excess of 100 million people. So we knew two years ago that China was already the fastest Asian workforce in human history. And these new revelations come on top of that and suggest that in addition to being the fastest Asian workforce ever, they also have 100 million fewer people aged 40 and under than they thought. And that gives China not just the fastest aging demographic ever, but the most rapidly collapsing one ever. And there is no way, if this is true, that China survives the decade as a modern nation state. I think this is interesting because this does explain why China continuously have these has these these lockdowns, right? To the extent that COVID, Omicron, any other variant is most dangerous to an older population. Well, if, if to your point, this is the fastest aging workforce ever and they're aware of that, then you can maybe make an argument that what we've seen from them is somewhat, in quotes, justified. Uh, You know, there might be something to that, and I'm sure that's going on in the back of their minds, but I don't think that's their primary concern. Their primary concern is that the Sinovac vaccine, all the Chinese vaccines, don't work against Omicron at all. So we're a little concerned here in the United States and in the Western world, really the brighter world, that the the, the vaccines that we've come up with, mRNA dosings, they don't work as well against Omicron, but they still broadly work. They still prevent death and hospitalization pretty well. And most of us have gotten vaccinated and have suffered from COVID at this point. So we're kind of getting a belt and suspenders approach to immunity. Chinese don't have that. The Chinese were broadly successful at keeping COVID out of their population. So no one has antibodies. And their vaccine doesn't work versus Omicron. So it doesn't matter if their population is vaccinated. And in that sort of an environment, if you take the most virtual bug humanity's ever been confronted with, and you throw it into a population with no resistance, you're talking about two to five million people dying a month for at least three or four months. This is a 
government that has made its bones in propaganda about talking about how it's handled COVID so well and how the West, it's been just a disaster, they were to have those kinds of fatality rates. That is a government-ending experience. Lockdowns are the only health policy that makes sense in that environment. But but this is what me, and me just because I'm not following it as closely as you, obviously, but why isn't it that Pfizer, Moderna aren't, you know, more in the conversation for, for China? Why is there such a insistence on the vaccines from, from their end as opposed to ours here in the, in the West? So they've, they've offered repeatedly. The problem is Chinese propaganda. So if you remember all that crap that came out from the anti-vaxxers about how COVID vaccines would make you magnetic or make you infertile, those originated with the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda arm. So uh, the mRNA variants cannot be used in China because clearly they're dangerous. Interesting. Okay, so it's a it's a it's a it's a messaging that so it's from the that they themselves created in the way that they absolutely. They I mean, it even it even predates that wolf warrior nonsense. That makes sense, and it is interesting because this kind of goes to your broader thesis, which you've had for a while, as I understand it, around this kind of deglobalization trend, which more and more people are banging the drum on. But I believe you started really addressing this in some of your prior books. Right, I'm looking at the 2014 one, the accidental superpower talking about global disorder and, and deglobalization. I, I want you to lay out for the audience here your thesis on these longer-term trends changing because everyone seems to attribute it to COVID, but it seems like the the seeds were in place for a while that you'd have a move towards deglobalization from that pendulum extreme of everything being so interconnected. Of course. We, we've been on this road for a while. So in the world before World War II, you had a series of imperial economies that traded as little as they could and certainly when it came to manufacturers or intermediate products. Because if you lost access to something because of a conflict, even if it wasn't with your trading partner, uh, that was it. You're out of luck. So you kept everything in-house, and those systems competed for control of resources and sea access and populations. That brought us the world wars. So at the end of the wars, the Americans decided to try something different. We told everyone that we would protect all of their commerce, no matter who it was with, no matter what it was, no matter where it was. If in exchange, they join us in our Cold War against the Soviets. And it worked. But this guns per butter trade had a cost. Now, back in 1946, the cost was nominal because the world was devastated. But if you fast forward to 1990, when the Cold War is ending, all of a sudden, all of the advanced countries roughly have an economy the same size as the United States, a little bit larger. And when the Soviet system collapsed, rather than us having a good, deep conversation with ourselves about what we want to do next? What's the second phase of globalization? How do we remake the world? What's the, the world we want to leave for our children? We voted out the guy who wanted us to have that conversation, George Herbert Walker Bush, and we went with Bill Clinton, who was more populist, who was followed by George W. Bush, who was more populist, who was followed by Obama, who was more populist, and then Trump, more populist, and Biden, more populist. That's not an aberration. That's a trend. Americans have broadly lost interest in that sort of trade. And since the rest of the world kept getting all the goodies for free, Americans just became jaded. And so our, this president and our previous one are the two most populist economic leaders we have ever had. We've been backing away from it the whole time. And if you throw the demographic bomb on top of that, the model wouldn't have worked any longer anyway. Because at its core, globalization is about trade and trade is about consumption. And if you don't have enough people in their 20s and 30s and early 40s to do the consumption, None of the rest of it works anyway. So we were always going to get here. Trump sped it up. COVID sped it up. Biden is sped it, speeding it up. 
The COVID lockdowns in China are speeding it up. And the Ukraine war, honestly, is a bit of a hard stop. So we're here. We're not going back. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. That higher high of populism is an interesting thing to focus on for a moment. I wonder, Peter, what, what's your core explanation for why populism is seemingly it keeps on increasing with every single presidential cycle? I, I mean, I can make an argument that's probably largely, if not fully driven by social media and echo chambers and this sort of um, categorization by viewpoint as opposed to nuance. But talk about what's what's sort of been the underlying reason for some of that? Well, I'll definitely agree with you on social media because it's given every wackadoo a bullhorn that we can't tune out anymore. And so it does make more extreme views and more, God, I don't want to sound like elitist here, but relatively uninformed and unintelligent views dominate the information cycle, which is really frustrating for somebody like me who thrives on context. So I won't dive into that. You, you guys understand that completely. Uh, let me give you two other reasons, though. One, globalization isn't free. It requires someone militarily holding up the ceiling of civilization. And since 1946, that's been the United States. And we're getting out of that business. As of January 1 of this year, the, I'm sorry, not January 1, as of February 21, the day before the Ukraine war started, the U.S. had fewer troops stationed abroad than any time since Reconstruction. We're done. And so as we're having breakdowns in civil control of things like transport, the U.S. just isn't there to protect it or pick up the pieces. And if you don't have broad-scale transport, we're just not interested. And then third, we go through phases in the United States. Uh, we have the first-past-the-post electoral system, which means you have to get one more vote than the next guy to get the seat. Well, that encourages the, the parties to be big tent parties because you have to throw as wide of a net as you can. But that means that the factions that are within the parties are always in motion, rising and falling within their party structures. And from time to time, due to changes in geopolitics or demographics or technology, you have a rupture when those factions just go hog wild and jump fences. We're going through one of those phases right now. We've had the rise of the baby boomers and now the retirement of the boomers. We've had the end of the Cold War and now the end of globalization. We've had the rise of the information age. All of these are disruptive events to society, and all of them by themselves, any of them by themselves, would probably be enough to force a new political reckoning. And for them to all happen in basically the same window, wow. Honestly, it's amazing to me that things have been as settled as they have been of late. Now, we've gone through six of these political realignments before. And the last time we went through it, African-Americans were to a person Republicans and big business were to a person Democrats. So it's awkward. Things that we think of as normal are now changing. And one of the reasons that everything seems so shrill is each political faction wants to make their issue the litmus test for loyalty for the new political alignment, whatever it happens to be. So look at the abortion debate in that light. Look at what's happening with organized labor. Organized labor strongly supported Donald Trump. Biden is trying to draw them back into the 
Democratic coalition. We will see if he is successful. Hispanics are shifting wholesale from left to right. This is all part of the process. And we will sort through this. Like I said, this is our sixth, or it's happened six times before. This is number seven. And it's always awkward and it's always painful and it's always loud. And now we have social media on top of that. And so the populists are absolutely having their day. Yes, I've heard you um, make this point that what happened for the last several decades, you can argue was almost like a, um, like a way of the U.S. bribing other countries in terms of getting their cheap labor in exchange for our defense and our military to oversee things. I want you to talk about how the, the role of the U.S. military factor into globalization and how that may end up being a big driver for the reversal. Sure. So water is the cheapest way to move things from place to place. It's assuming you have an American-style superhighway system, moving things on water is still 12 times cheaper. Uh, and that assumes you're using big semis as opposed to like half semis. Uh, so the trick is always to figure out how to get population centers that are on the water to interact. And globalization made that safe. In the world before 1946, commerce was a target. State piracy was rampant. And you didn't have interconnections among economies. But by making the world safe for civilian transport, by meaning that you didn't have to get a national escort, we started shipping things that we normally wouldn't have. Uh, especially when it came to the manufacturer's trade. Instead of shipping like finished vehicles, we would break up the supply chain into bumpers to spark plugs and everything in between, and it would be put together at different locations. So you could have 30,000 independent supply chains that feed into a single vehicle. You couldn't do that in a world before a globalized, safe, secure maritime environment. And that required the U.S. Navy. And it required the U.S. Navy in an era where there really wasn't a competitor. So during the Cold War, yes, the Russians had their navy, but they actually had four of them, one in the Black Sea, Baltic Sea, Arctic Sea, and the Pacific. And any one of them could not sail to reinforce the others, whereas the United States basically had a continent to itself and could have two giant fleets, one in each ocean, and go and do whatever it needed to do. It was very easy to patrol everything. But in the time since the Cold War ended... The Chinese have had their rise. We have a number of other secondary navies that are building out. And the United States, since it didn't ever really care about the economic side of globalization, for us, it was a security policy. We changed the way our Navy worked. And instead of having hundreds of destroyers, we now have 11 supercarrier battle groups of the vast, vast, vast majority of our naval power. If we wanted to go back to where we were in the 60s in a contested environment and patrol the global sea lane so that everyone could ship everything, we would probably need about 800 destroyers. We have 70, and half of them are assigned to protect the carriers. So there is no country, there is no coalition of countries any longer that can provide the security overwatch that's necessary to make globalization work in the first place. So it's just a question of where do we have the precipitating event or the complete collapse in security when that becomes obvious to everyone. We're not quite there yet. Uh, along that line, I think I'd argue that you get that, that collapse when the realization occurs that a key component of reducing U.S. national debt has to be cutting the military, right? Because there is a direct link there, and obviously there's a lot more to it than that, but that seems to be a very hard thing from a voter perspective to, to try to sell, right? If you're trying to lower 
debt to say, do it from the military side. I don't think really we've ever had a, ever had a situation where the military uh, spending has ever really gone down. Oh, I could be wrong on several. that. We've had several. That, that's false. Yeah, no, and and I want to, and this the reason I'm relating to debt is mm-hmm. is this I think is sort of the other major aspect to demographics, which is that you've got this demographic bomb, as you alluded to, but you also have this debt bomb that seemingly nobody cares about until finally they do. And I want to relate that to what you said earlier. You said capital costs go up in in this kind of future that we could be headed towards. How, how do we possibly survive as a system if you have so much debt in the system, and then, by the way, interest rates keep on going higher, making the debt load even more expensive when you roll over that debt? I mean, that seems like a very nasty combination. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to try to talk you out of that. <laughs> let, me yeah, right, exactly. let me give you some background and context here. So let's start with the military. We've spent the last 21 years basically fighting a series of wars in places that we have no desire in having a long-term presence any longer. We have designed our military to be personnel happy because we had to occupy countries. So we now have an army that is bigger and more capable in that field than we really have ever. And we're We now have to decide how rapidly we want to downsize that. If we want to downsize that, that's a political question. We are not yet having that conversation. But uh, my friends in the military are going to be aghast at this. But with what I see as likely deployments, the Army is probably too big by about two-thirds right now. But decommissioning and downsizing that many troops that quickly costs more than maintaining them. And and by the way, and to your point, and that's the unemployment rate goes up substantially. I, I don't because think so. The total the total standing forces are under two million. Mm-hmm. So I'm I don't think that would be a big concern. And a lot of people serve their 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 tour or do two tours and then at the end of the tour they go back to the civilian workforce. So my my point is here is that downsizing the military sounds like a quick and easy fix. It's not. It's a decade process, just like it was in the 90s the last time we did that. And you will not get meaningful savings until the 2030s. So that's kind of piece one. Piece two, let's talk about the debt a little bit more directly. Uh, First of all, it's probably worse than you think. On the political side, the fiscal conservatives have been destroyed as a faction. Trump saw to that. They were the first group that he purged from the Republican Party. They're now swing voters. They're one of the smaller groups out there in terms of voting blocks. And the Democrats under Biden clearly are not interested in making concessions to them to bring them into the fold. So the people who would normally you know, be the accountants and be wearing the visors, they are no longer part of the conversation at all, which I'm a little bitter about because I'm personally one of them. Uh, second, whatever you're thinking about the debt bomb, it's probably a lot bigger than you think. Because not only are the baby boomers about to draw a huge amount of capital, but they have been the world's largest source of the capital now for 20 years. So it's not just that they're going into retirement and they're going to be going on the dole, whether it's Social Security or Medicaid. It's also that we're losing our single largest, single richest tax paying demographic at the same time. So whatever we've had at this point in terms of debt build, it's about to get so much bigger. That's where entitlements come in because Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, these are so many, so much bigger line items than military spending. And if you're going to be serious about getting back to a, a black zero for your budgeting plan, that's where the hard work is going to be done. That is much more difficult than simply going after the mili- after the military. And it will require a lot more sacrifice by people who are voters because the baby boomers are, even though they're advanced in age, they are the second largest voting bloc right now after the millennials. And they will outnumber Gen X for at least another 12 years 
So the single biggest beneficiary of a bad debt environment is the group that can prevent any meaningful changes to it if they so choose. And I'm pretty sure they so choose. But now that I've depressed you a little bit. But hold on, I'll tell you something because I've made that. I'll take it in the context of of my world from an investing perspective, right? You hear a lot about this narrative that 60, 40, 60 stocks, 40% bonds is dead. And my response is, that could be the case, but if that's the case, that is an end of the world scenario because as you alluded to, tax receipts end up collapsing. Aside from the baby boomers, to your point, no longer being able to, to pay off taxes because now they're in a mode of divesting in general and not generating income in the same way, you have a situation where stocks, your, your, your risk assets fall so you don't have capital gains. And then, by the way, your interest expense is higher, so when you roll over that debt, you're paying off more. Mm-hmm. So exactly to your point, you have an explosion of the deficit. That seems reasonable. But I don't think I'm as depressed about that as you are. Assuming the United States can maintain its broad growth rate, which looking at demographic and geopolitical factors, I think 2 to 3% to growth for the next decade is reasonable. Uh, you can do deficit spending to the tune of about $800 to $900 billion a year uh, without increasing the relative debt load. Now, I don't feel great about saying this, but the numbers do hold. Uh, second, and this is probably far more important, Because our boomers had kids, there is a light at the end of the debt tunnel. There is another surge of capital coming down in 10 years. Most of the world doesn't have that. So everyone else is dealing with our aging process and crisis and the numbers turning against them at a higher percentage point, or I'm sorry, at a higher proportion compared to their population. Our boomers are about a quarter smaller than everyone else's because no one else has millennials. So for them, this isn't a 10-year period. This is their now norm. And it will get worse and worse every year until their systems collapse. And in that sort of environment, especially once you throw in things like the Ukraine war and a China breakdown and general deglobalization, the volume of capital internationally that is going to be looking for a safe haven is going to be monumental. And there are just so few places that are options with the United States being bigger than all of them put together. So we know capital costs are going to rise. We know that capital availability is going to drop. We know that our debt level is going to increase. But at the same time, all of that is happening. There's going to be this steady stream turning into a steady tsunami of capital coming in from the wider world that will help finance it all and will help drive economic growth even further. It won't be a straight line. That sounds a lot like Brent Johnson's... um, what he would call the dollar milkshake theory that you'll end up having a lot of capital going to the U.S. So you'll have a crisis driven by some sovereign events, and maybe that becomes this sudden realization that capital has to go somewhere safe, and the U.S. is the safest. So you kind of have this scenario where your dollar keeps on rising, uh, and it actually benefits the U.S. because all this money is flowing into us. I would expect the U.S. dollar to be at multi-decade lows at the moment, and it's entirely possible that that crack has already happened in Europe. And it's manifesting, among other ways, through the exchange rate. How does longevity and advances in healthcare, how does that factor into any of these demographics? Because you can imagine a scenario where, who the hell knows, somehow there's some equivalent of a fountain of youth medically that becomes, I don't know where, just out there and people live longer and people can work longer as a result and cognitive functions are still there. How does that play into any of this? Because I, th- I feel like there's always the, the positive unknown of how technology can interplay with, with demographics. So let's split that into two points. So the first one is not living longer, but being more productive for longer. So 
Right now, there's a problem. People talk about extending the retirement age because that would generate more income and put off the payments. And I know that sounds very attractive until you realize that between illness and mortality, 65 is at the moment kind of our limit. Uh, so if we raise the uh, age of retirement to 70, we're actually getting diminishing returns. We get people who are paid highly because they've been at their jobs for a long time, but their productivity starts to plummet after 65. So something that reverses that productivity plummeting would be what we were after. Things that allow you to be more productive and healthier longer. Uh, that would be what we're after. That is not where the money has gone because that's not what baby boomers have been interested in. They don't want to work longer. They want to live longer. And so we've put all of our money in terms of medical research into extending life, but not necessarily making it more enjoyable. And that is absolutely the wrong way to go from an economic point of view. And we, to my knowledge, have no imminent breakthroughs in that first category that would actually solve some of these fiscal issues. All the breakthroughs are looking at the second problem, the, the aging issue, and that actually makes the fiscal situation worse by leaving people on the dole with high health care costs without income and paying taxes for longer. And how does that interplay with what I'm sharing at the top of the space here, which is you know this idea that agriculture becomes you know a, a tremendous growth industry? Because if if let's say from a longer term perspective, agriculture becomes more and more expensive. Would uh, that actually make a population less healthy and actually shorten longevity because carbs are cheap, right? So yeah, it's kind of, I think it's kind of interesting dynamic in terms of even this longevity argument that I just presented versus you know sort of the uh, the food side of things. But talk about how agriculture and and everything there kind of dovetails into into your worldview. I'm not really concerned about agriculture from the American point of view. I don't see any of the products that we make for domestic consumption, really seen significant shifts. Uh, most of our supply chains in terms of the equipment and the labor and the, uh, the inputs, whether it's fertilizer, pesticide, whatever, that's all done within North America for the most part. So we can have significant global disruption in any number of ways. And the North American food cycle is going to be broadly okay. Uh, the rest of the world, that is most definitely not the case. We're getting our first taste of disruptions to agricultural inputs right now. The number of the world's fertilizers, the, the largest exporter is Russia or Belarus. Uh, and so we're already, we've already seen this calendar year significant changes to who is planting what, where, or how much fertilizer they're using. And when we get to our first good harvest forecast in September, we'll have an idea of just how low global yields are going to be relative to what we think of as normal. We don't have to wait too much longer to find out about that. And this is the start then of a significant calorie deficit on a global basis. Not in North America, probably not in the Western Hemisphere at large, because that area is broadly self-sufficient and immune to what's going on in the Eastern Hemisphere. But we're looking at input shortages, we're looking at energy shortages, we're looking at capital shortages. And as soon as it becomes clear just how China's going to shake out, we're probably going to be looking at equipment shortages as well. So I can see dramatically reduced output agriculturally in China, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in the former Soviet Union, and based on how bad it gets, even in Australia. And we're talking about three and five calories that the world produces are facing chronic limitations in how they can maintain that output due to some sort of shortage in something. And almost none of it applies to North America. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Okay, so we touched on a lot of different topics, and when I put the tweet out for this, I, I said, uh, new world order, or liberal world order, you know, I, I can't even keep up with these different terms. Um, and I've had a few geopolitical strategists talk about how the sort of world order is changing because of alliances and friendshore and all this stuff. I want you to talk about how you're seeing some of these big mega trends for a moment in terms of how the West interacts with everybody else. We, we focus mostly on Russia, Ukraine, we focus on China, but... Is there anything on the on the geopolitical front that uh, you think people are not paying too much attention to? I mean, Africa never seems to be part of that conversation, but I feel like that's an important uh, area to focus on as well. Uh, well, I'm glad that people have started to understand a little bit more about supply chains. We can thank COVID for that. And uh, because of what's going on with the Ukraine war, the, um, the contradictions inherent to the green transition are making themselves very apparent in the European space. And that is going to force a lot of people to make some different decisions. Uh, putting up solar and wind in places that are neither windy or sunny is a questionable strategy in the best of times. And it has proven so spectacularly unsuccessful in Europe that they're going back to coal wholesale because it's the only way they can prevent deindustrialization. But people have not gotten used to going down a level to a little bit more, more base mechanics that allow modern society to exist. We, we all understand instinctually that you need iron ore to make steel, but we don't really process where that comes from or what that looks like. And whether it's steel or lithium or copper or zinc or any of the others, they are concentrated in terms of their production zones and their processing zones more so than oil is. And so it is very easy for me to imagine a dozen scenarios off the top of my head where the world loses access to one or more of these materials and how that cascades then through all the other economic sectors, first in manufacturing and then going into transport and agriculture very quickly. Uh, that is not something that we're used to thinking about because a lot of these materials were not processed in the volumes or the purity that we have today before World War II. And so their entire production cycle is defined by an open globalized world. And if you break that, so many places are going to have to get by without so many of the things that we think of as just modern, essential stuff. We have not started planning for that, but it's coming very, very soon. Right. And that, that's kind of really hitting more on the, the rare earth side, right? Uh, as far as China, I think, in particular goes. And I've had some some spaces talking about lithium and, and some of the dilemmas from a geographic perspective. How does that dynamic alter some of these these sort of political allegiances because we can talk all day long about deglobalization but to your point if certain countries have quasi monopoly on some of these rare earth materials minerals whatever you want to call it you know they have a degree of bargaining power to maybe at least slow down that deglobalization that benefits their own countries or that it doesn't it takes away from their own countries it depends on who the country is so for example most of the world's cobalt comes from congo and without cobalt there are no evs and in fact cell phones for the large part go away congo is at best a failed state 
Uh, and so the idea that it has any control over how this goes is a little ludicrous. Right now, the mines are owned primarily by the Chinese. They get the ore out, they send it to China for processing, then it's incorporated into battery chassis uh, in East Asia, and then it goes to the wider world. But if you break that first link, the cobalt, uh, you know, your, your options are limited. Number one, you can come up with a much better battery chemistry, but I'd argue we've been working on that for 10 years with limited success. Uh, number two, you can occupy Congo, which is in essence what the Chinese have done to this point, and go on neo-colonial. I would like to think that there would be an ethics conversation to be held at that point. Or number three, you can just go without and kiss that aspect of the green of the green transition completely goodbye. Uh, and we're going to have to have some version of this conversation about each and every one of these materials. Most of them are not as physically concentrated in their production like cobalt. For example, iron ore primarily comes from two countries, Australia and Brazil. But to think that all of these changes can cascade through and production and transport of the material and the intermediate products is just going to be unaffected, that's some optimistic thinking. So the, the, the name of your book is phenomenal in that it makes me want to buy it and be nervous, but I have to imagine it's not as negative as it sounds, which is the end of the world is just the beginning. Right? And I don't think you're necessarily arguing that you're going to have an apocalypse, but rather that the world that we know is, is ending. Right. That is the goal, yes. Right. So, so let's let's talk about the thesis behind that book for a moment. How is it different maybe from some of the other books that you've put out? What's changed from, I think the last book was 2014. Um, just just talk you know, talk that up a little bit because it's, by the way, those that are listening, it's number three on the Amazon charts. I'm just looking right now. It's, uh, it's getting quite a bit of attention here. So talk through that for the audience here. Of course. The, the first three books are more or less about the rise and the fall of great power. So Accidental Superpowers talks about the crises that America, that are going to erupt because of deglobalization and depopulation, and then the issues that Americans are most likely to notice. Uh, Absent Superpower goes into depth in the shale revolution and then plays it forward to show how that's going to accelerate the American withdrawal and remake the American industrial space. Disunited Nations is on the backside of deglobalization. It's about how the countries that we think of as the future, your Brazils, your Russias, your Chinas, came to occupy that place in our mind, and how in a deglobalized world collapses one of the, um, the less dire outcomes for them, and instead presenting the, the country like France and Japan that actually will dominate the human conditions in the future. So all of these are about countries rising and falling in these changed circumstances. The newer book does it from a business point of view. So instead of focusing on the rise and fall of China or Argentina or whoever it happened to be, it goes into each of the economic sectors that define our world, transport, finance, energy, industrial commodities, manufacturing, and agriculture. Shows us how we got to this interconnected world and what that meant, how that changed space, how that changed investment opportunities, and then how everything is going to turn inside out as globalization breaks down and depopulation really drives us forward. Uh, it's different lessons for different sectors in different regions. There's a lot of stories to tell, and it's making a bit of a mess in government circles right now. Uh, let's start with the biggest concern. I don't see our narcissism and our political debates as being a geopolitical limiting factor in terms of our power projection or our future power. It absolutely limits what we're willing to consider but it doesn't actually get to the core of what allows us to be us, for, for better or for, for ill. Uh, so, for example, 
20 years ago when 9-11 happened. We were relatively unified as a country. We were coming off to the 90s, which we thought of as a great decade. And despite the back and forth between the Democrats and the Republicans early in the W administration, we were talking about constructive things. Pre-social media, that helped. 9-11 happened. That drove us together even more. And for the next 15 years, the United States from a foreign policy view was very active. Now, we can all say whether or not we can debate whether we thought we were active in a productive way. But the point was there wasn't a lot of dissent within the United States about whether we should or should not be active. It's a question of how should we do it? We can't do that right now. Uh, the debates have become so fierce and so petty and so myopic that the United States at the moment cannot have a conversation with itself about foreign policy. And so if it wasn't for Vladimir Putin making his move back in February, we probably would not be part of the global system from a discussion point of view at all. I don't care what the rhetoric of the West says. We just wouldn't have had the bandwidth because we're all absorbed with everything that's happening domestically. Now, in terms of things in the future that could go wrong, let me give you a couple of scenarios. I don't think any of them are a high likelihood, but I think they're the things we should be concerned about. So first, um, short term, we're facing a capital crunch. We're facing an economic transition. We know we need to double the size of the industrial plant. That can go wrong in two ways. Number one, the government can get away in the way, and I do have some concerns about the Biden administration. The Biden administration is facing, is treating every problem with supply chains and inflation and taxes as if it were purely a demand issue, and that is not the case. Primarily, these are now supply issues. The chains are breaking down, interruptions to energy flows around the world, a decade loss of investment capital across the entire energy space and a global agricultural system that is so precariously balanced. The way you solve these issues is with investment in new supply. And the Biden administration seems pathologically, almost ideologically opposed to even considering that as an option. Instead, they're taking steps to increase demand, which in a supply chain stressed inflationary environment is guaranteed to make every single problem that he says he wants to fix worse. I normally try not to criticize political leaders until they've done something so monumentally dumb that they can't come back. And I am worried that the Biden administration is approaching my threshold for that very, very quickly. And if we fail to build out the requisite supply systems to fix these issues, we will have high inflation for a lot more than five years. So if this works and we do the build out, that is inflationary too. And we will have inflation of 9 to 15% for five years, but we will be accompanied by near record growth. If we fail to do the build out, we get all of the inflation and none of the growth and it is not over in five years. So I'm not too concerned because it's just so obvious, but it should be obvious to the White House press corps as well. And it is not longer term. Ruling out for the moment a general nuclear exchange, which I see as exceedingly low. I think the biggest long-term threat we will have is what happens when you do have a series of breakdowns around the world that shattered global manufacturing and energy and transport and agriculture. The world that emerges from that is going to be a chaotic, somewhat Darwinian place. And in that sort of environment, our problem is not someone like the United States electing somebody like Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Our problem is when a significant ethnicity or series of countries elect their version of populists. Now, this is how we get the next Joe Stalin. 
this is how we get the next Mao Zedong or the next Adolf Hitler or the next Pol Pot. I am very concerned about what happens to a world that deglobalizes and the U.S. just doesn't care. I don't have a fix for you here. The United States gets engaged for one of two reasons. We see opportunity or we get scared. There's opportunity here. There is a way for the United States to remake the global condition, to remake the human condition. We've got the capacity. We've got the reach. We just don't have the bandwidth at home. And if we can rebuild that bandwidth, if we can get through this political reshuffling that we're going through right now, then hopefully we can beat the global collapse and come up with a new vision, have a conversation about what we want. But if we fail, uh, global, massive global degradation is the only way forward here. And people will take advantage of that, and we will not like how they do that. By the way, Peter, I give you credit. I, I, I just got a text from a, a buddy of mine who's in the space saying, he's scaring the shit out of me, but I like him. Did you say <laughs> that he is in space? <laughs> no, he's in the space, in the Twitter space, I'm saying. Ah, he's just texting. No, no. You, you reach as far, but I don't know if it goes that far to, to actual yeah. space. Uh, let me take Canada down a half a notch, and then we'll go into the positives. Canada does have great rocks. Unfortunately, the really good rocks are nowhere near where they're needed. And the problem has always been the capital investment to build the mines and get the stuff out. Now, in a globalized world where you're competing with Australia and Brazil and South Africa, Canada oftentimes didn't do great. And so a lot of Canadian mining companies have had to up and leave to other production zones in other countries. I expect a lot of that to reverse in the world we're going into because if it's a choice between high production costs or not having the material... You know, that, that moves the needle. Uh, so Canada is going to be able to take advantage of a lot of the technological advances we've seen in the mining space over the last 30 years, in many cases for the first time. Uh, and the only restriction on Canadian output will be the restrictions that the Canadians decide themselves. So you get to have that conversation with your provincial and your federal governments. Have fun with that. I'm sure it's going to be a hoot uh, because we all know how difficult that can be no matter where you are. Uh, now, I am not a CFA. I don't want to tell you what you should do with your portfolio. By the way, I am, and I also don't want to tell you <laughs> what to do <laughs> right, with your portfolio. But, but things I see that are just slam dunks. If the demand for the product is demographically driven, well, the United States has the world's slowest aging demography, and Mexico is the healthiest demography of the advanced industrial world. So you know in North America, you've got a solid consumption base that will continue to grow even without inward immigration, which I think will increase once we get past through this phase where we hate everybody. Uh, in terms of commodities, uh, we know that most Russian oil is going to fall off the market. The stuff that goes to Europe comes from Western Siberia, and it's produced in the permafrost. And the second that is shut down, the wells start to crack and you don't reopen them. The stuff in Eastern Siberia wasn't done by the Russians. It was done by Western companies who are no longer there. So that stuff's going to zero. Whether or not that happens in three months or six months or three years, I don't know. We've never had to deal with this before. A lot of the oil production that is in places like the Middle East is not what we would call stable, especially with the United States no longer part of the conversation. So to think that you could have access to oil and if you have the ability to bring it to market, that seems to kind of be a slam dunk from my point of view. The trick, of course, is getting it to market. If you want to do it in the lowest carbon intensive way, I realize that this is like heresy to some Canadians and some Americans, especially the Green Movement. But the best way to do that is to pipe it to Texas where the refineries already exist. So you don't have to build any more industrial plant than you already have to do. 
I would like to think that that conversation is going to be reopened in the next year when it becomes apparent just how bad the global shortage is going to be. But ultimately, I think the economic sector, especially in Canada, that is going to expand the most explosively and sustainably is going to be agriculture. If you remove former Soviet potash from the market, all that is left is Canada. And Canada has enough to supply the United States, but not a lot else. And we are going to have chronic, crippling potash and phosphorus, I'm sorry, potash and phosphate shortages in Australia, in Africa, in Brazil, and in South Asia. And that is going to have a horrific impact on our ability to grow staples. The crop that is likely to suffer the most in terms of overall output is wheat. Two things going on there. Number one, a lot comes from the former Soviet world. That's going to go away. And then second, wheat's a weed. We only grow it where we can't grow anything else. And in a world where deglobalization becomes more and more entrenched by the month, that means countries are going to have to start growing wheat not on their marginal land, but on their better land in order to feed their own populations. That doesn't just mean a collapse of global agricultural trade at volume and into the diversity we become used to. It means that we're going to have massive wheat shortages because a lot of that wheat right now isn't just grown in marginal zones. It's grown in marginal zones that can only be brought into cultivation with industrial level technologies and inputs. And if that goes away, you're looking at catastrophic reductions out of production everywhere in the world except the United States and Canada. And so wheat goes from being very, very boring to being the sexiest market play out there. I think the general thesis is unfortunately very sound. Uh, the United States, we adventure into the world when we see opportunity or when we, we feel fear. And it's kind of a crapshoot as to which it is. So Spanish-American War was opportunity. World War I, World War II, that was fear. Cold War, that was fear. The 19th expansion was opportunity. We're probably in a period now where we're kind of on the knife edge and go either direction. So I don't know what it would be. But if there is a threat, that is absolutely one of the dominant ways where the United States does decide to re-engage. And because the U.S. economy is held locally, but the U.S. military is the most powerful and has the most reach, how we re-engage, how we react to that fear drives global developments for at least a generation. The last time it happened, it was the war on terror, which turned the Middle East upside down. Middle East may never recover from the damage that we did as a side effect of our panic attack. So absolutely reasonable concern. Taiwan specifically, I'm not so concerned about. Uh, one of the weird things that has happened in China in the last few years is the consolidation of Xi Jinping's cult of personality to the degree that there is now no one left in the country that is capable of acting on independent thought. Everyone has either been intimidated into silence or executed or exiled, and it's just him to the degree that no one wants to bring him news. I think the best example of that happened back in February when we had the Olympics. And Putin was there, and she asked Putin to his face if he was planning on in, in, uh, invading Ukraine. And Putin just said flat out, no, of course not. And people in Xi's entourage from the intelligence committee just bit their tongues because they knew it was a lie, but they didn't dare tell their boss because they didn't know how he was, would react because he killed so many of his messengers, they didn't want to be the next one. So Xi is not getting basic information about what's going on in the world or even his own country. 
And we're seeing things like this COVID lockdown policy that are just leading to systemic failures up and down the entire bureaucracy because no one wants to act. They're terrified. And in that sort of environment, this is normally where you'd have a change in plan because the Chinese who are smart are looking at Russia and realizing how badly this is going. And when they try to put themselves in the Russians' shoes, they don't like what it looks like. They now know that if they try a war with Taiwan, it would not be quick. It would not be easy. The Taiwanese have been preparing for this war for 70 years, and they have a moat. You can walk from Moscow to Kiev. Uh, so the, the Chinese would not be able to bring the numbers to bear. They now have severe doubts about the weapon systems that they've copied or bought from the Russians. So everything that they've thought from a military point of view is proving to be wrong. 40 years of military planning has gone out the window. And then there's the sanctions and the boycotts. Russia isn't a great economy, but it's a huge exporter of food and energy. China imports that stuff. In fact, they import like three quarters of their oil and about three quarters of the components that are necessary for them to grow their food. So if you take a Russia-style sanctions package and put it against Beijing, you have the country de-industrialize in under a year. And then, of course, the boycotts have completely side-swiped them. The idea that people like you or me, just you know, consumers, could have any say over corporate policy is just alien. This is normally where the leadership would take its smart people and its think tanks and its analysts and put them into a back room with some beer and pizza and tell them, don't come out until you have a plan B for me. But Xi has shot all those people. And so China is slamming its head into the wall over and over and over and over. So if a war for Taiwan does happen, it will absolutely be the end of the People's Republic, even if the United States does not get involved directly, because the Chinese cannot sustain their system without American complicity in transport, energy, and agriculture. And I have a stinking suspicion that Chinese war of expansion would end all of that. I think that's a, that's a good way to end this uh, space. Again, everybody that's here, please make sure you follow Peter on Twitter and obviously check out The End of the World is Just the Beginning uh, on Amazon or any other place that you uh, get books. Peter, first time you and I are speaking, really do appreciate the uh, the knowledge that you share. Obviously, I focus much more on the investing side, but I like having these kinds of conversations for the audience to get them uh, to think maybe differently about different paths as far as the unknowable future. So thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. No worries. Take care. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.